0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. This episode is the third in a three-part podcast miniseries on expanding options for HIV care, current and future innovations in antiretroviral therapy. In the miniseries, we are talking with global HIV experts as well as patient advocates to hear their insights on different aspects of the evolving field of HIV care. In the first and second episodes, we followed a conceptual roadmap of HIV treatment that began with where we are with HIV service delivery and moved on to where we're going, discussing the next wave of antiretroviral therapy innovations. In this third episode, we'll go to the third and final stop along that roadmap where we want to be, the search for a cure for HIV, focusing on the current status of HIV cure research and key concepts to understand and communicate when engaging with patients, colleagues, and the broader community. To begin, I spoke with Sharon Lewin, inaugural director of the Doherty Institute, professor of medicine at the University of Melbourne, and president of the International AIDS Society. I asked her about the current status of HIV cure research.
1: Well, HIV cure research is a very active scientific area with a increasing number of people and investment being made. I think we've come a long way in understanding the HIV reservoir, largely due to new technologies that provide insight into both the sequence of the virus and where it's located. And at the same time, we've come a long way in interventions that can give a hint to us that it's possible to control the virus in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. And by that, I mean interventions or clinical trials that when we randomize people to stop antiretroviral therapy with or without the intervention, we see that in, in some participants, they can maintain control.
0: I posed the same question to Krista Dong, Global Infectious Disease Specialist, member of the Reagan Institute of Mass General Hospital, Harvard and MIT, and the founder of several critical programs supporting patient-centered HIV and TB care approaches in South Africa, including the Females Rising Through Education, Support, and Health, or FRESH program, and the Integration of TB in Education and Care for HIV-AIDS, or I-TEACH program. So this is a very exciting time for HIV cure research
2: right now. The field's actively engaged in developing new drugs and immunotherapy approaches, to target persistent HIV or what we call the reservoir, which absolutely has to be reached in order to cure HIV infection. We're still some distance from having a cure that's easy to administer, that's affordable and above all, widely available. Um, Researchers have learned and are still learning a tremendous amount from three groups of people. One is a small handful of individuals who have been cured. They've been in the news a lot, using high-risk stem cell transplants. And the other group are individuals called elite controllers who are somehow able to live in harmony with HIV without taking any treatment and not progress to illness. And then the final group are called post-treatment controllers. And these are individuals in whom the virus persists in their bodies, but somehow they're able to keep the virus in check with their immune system. And controllers have inspired intensive research into how the body is able to do this, and then going on to test products that will bring about post-treatment control in individuals. So the fact that a cure in HIV is achievable um, has really energized researchers in the community toward achieving this goal, and subsequently, um, funding agencies, government and private, have targeted HIV cure as a high priority. So that's. Kind of where we are. It's a a very exciting time for the field
0: of HIV cure. So, what types of interventions are currently under investigation for potential HIV cure? I think there are sort of two
3: main focuses for cure therapy right now. And one would be immunotherapy, where we're trying to enhance the human immune system's ability to clear virus and to suppress virus reactivation. with a bunch of different immunotherapeutic strategies. And then the other approach would be more of a gene therapy approach where we're using advances from gene therapy applied to cancer, applied to other infectious diseases, to be able to deliver various treatments or actually modify virus-infected cells um, through a range of strategies. So I do think there's a lot of promise both for immunotherapy and gene therapy, and potentially even combining those two approaches. But those are the two main areas that I think there's m- most attention on right now.
0: That was Katherine Barr, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Viral and Molecular Core of the Penn Center for AIDS Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Dong also shared her insights on the types of cure approaches currently under investigation, and I asked her which strategies seem to be the most promising approaches at this point. I can cite four different approaches that
2: have gained a lot of traction, um, and some that were accelerated by work that was done during the COVID pandemic. Firstly, most trials right now are including two or more products called broadly neutralizing antibodies, and we refer to those as BNABS for short. BNAPs can be used to block infection and prevent HIV from entering target cells, and BNAPs are also being used after infection is established to enhance immune function as part of a cure or mission strategy. So BNAPs can recognize and attach to infected cells and recruit immune cells to attack infected cells. So BNAPs, there are currently ongoing um, trials testing different BNAP combinations. Right now, it's typically two or even three BNABs used in combination. Another um, category that's looking promising are immunomodulators. And oftentimes there's an immunomodulator that's used in conjunction with a combination of BNABs. There are several immune modulating interventions being tested right now. Again, usually multiple drugs are used together and these agents variously suppress and stimulate immune function. And these cocktails are a combination of drugs need to reach the virus hiding in the reservoirs again to activate the immune system um, so the virus can be controlled without treatment, essentially creating post-treatment controllers. Then there's gene therapy, which is really an exploding field right now, as firstly um, starting in treatment of cancers and in other conditions like sickle cell anemia and of course HIV. There's um, one product that has just gone into a phase one, two trial right now using an adeno-associated vector to deliver um, a CRISPR and dual guided RNA. And again, this targets and excises large parts of the HIV genome. And this treatment is delivered as a single IV infusion and it's being tried first as a curative therapy for HIV involving an ATI, which is an analytical treatment interruption, or where individuals pause their antiretroviral treatment. And then lastly, there's something called CAR T-cells. CART T-cell treatment offer a targeted therapy aimed to achieve a sterilizing HIV cure. And then addressing one of the, the major drawbacks again is how to eliminate the HIV reservoir from the body. So those would be my top list of um, promising and exciting strategies. Again, BNABs, immunomodulators, gene therapy and CART
1: T-cells.
0: When I spoke with Professor Lewin, I asked her to describe some of the specific cure strategies her team is investigating.
1: There are two approaches to HIV cure. One is eradication, eliminating every infected cell, and that is quite a challenge. Um, And to date, we don't have anything that does that except transplantation. The other approach is what we call reducing control, reduce the size of the reservoir and enhance immune control. And my lab largely works on strategies to reduce and strategies to control the virus. So amongst the strategies to reduce the reservoir, we've been interested for a long time in something called latency reversal. So activating the virus to lure it out of its hiding place with the goal to induce virus-mediated cytolysis or induce immune recognition. And we're doing that using a range of different drugs, and more recently, approaches that are highly HIV-specific. So up until now, most latency-reversing agents have used drugs that activate genes more broadly and therefore activate the HIV gene. But the problem with those approaches, like HDAC inhibitors as one example, is that they're not HIV-specific. So we've been using approaches that are HIV specific. One of those is delivering an HIV protein called TAT and the other is leveraging off advances in CRISPR technologies, where you can very specifically activate a single gene and here we're trying to activate the HIV gene. And we've been able to um, advance this area largely because of improved delivery systems specifically mRNA in a fat bubble or mRNA in a lipid nanoparticle that everyone's familiar with through because of COVID vaccination, we can also use those same technologies to deliver HIV-specific latency-reversing agents. The other approach we're using to shrink the reservoir is um, by increasing the likelihood of the cell committing suicide, uh, using drugs that drive cell death or drive apoptosis, These are largely drugs that have been developed for cancer and we've been testing those for HIV and we've had some very promising results using venetoclax and venetoclax inhibits a pro-survival protein and therefore pushes a cell that is susceptible to cell death. And we have been looking at venetoclax in animal models, in patient cells, ex vivo, And showed that vanitoclax shrinks the reservoir. And we're currently in the process of establishing a clinical trial of vanitoclax in people living with HIV. And the final approach is to improve immune control. And our main focus here has been looking at immunomodulating therapies, not vaccination, not antibodies. We've been looking at drugs that enhance immunity. Um, One of those drugs. Is a drug called pomalidomide which has been used for the treatment of certain cancers. We haven't yet tested that in animal models but in patient cells this does enhance immune activity, HIV-specific immune activity. And the other approach which we've um, done a lot of work in is using immune checkpoint blockade or reversing immune exhaustion again, leveraging from the cancer field using something called anti-PD-1. And people will be familiar with anti-PD-1 and similar compounds because of their use for treatment of metastatic melanoma, lung cancer, and other malignancies. And what anti-PD-1 does is it basically takes the brakes off the immune system, reverses T-cell exhaustion, and enhances the activity of those T-cells. And we've done a lot of work in um, in vitro in cells from people with HIV on antiretroviral therapy who receive anti-PD-1 for their cancer treatment. And we're just in the process of a clinical trial here in Melbourne and eventually will also be done in Singapore using anti-PD-1 people with HIV on antiretroviral therapy without cancer. The real challenge with using anti-PD-1 is its toxicity. It has a range of immune-related adverse events, and we're trying to overcome that toxicity by using very low doses of anti-PD-1.
0: Clearly, a variety of approaches are under study, with much still to learn from each trial. Richard Jeffries is the Basic Science Vaccines and Cure Project Director for the Research and Policy Think Tank Treatment Action Group. I spoke with him about the challenges associated with the long journey towards an HIV cure.
4: You know, I think there are parallels between uh, the difficulties of HIV vaccine and HIV cure research, because this is a virus that unlike pretty much any other virus specifically targets and undermines the immune system, which is what we usually rely on to try and prevent or cure a disease, is is to try and bolster or enhance the immune response in some way. And unfortunately, HIV is going into the CD4 cells, which would usually be sort of coordinating that immune system work and, and preventing them from doing that job. And, and that's a tough challenge. Um, you know, when, when you have a virus like hepatitis, you know, it's in the liver is where it's, you know, doing the damage and you try and recruit the immune system to help. Say so with COVID, it's in the lungs. But with HIV, it's the immune system is trying to deal with it, a virus infection of itself. Uh, which is unusual and and difficult. Um, But there are, I think, you know, the the number of studies that are ongoing reflects uh, a broad variety of approaches that are being investigated for potential. um, Probably the largest uh, category of studies is combinations, sort of taking inspiration from the development of antiretroviral therapy, thinking that probably the best way to achieve uh, uh, um, the best outcome is by combining different approaches to target the the way that the virus persists in different ways.
0: Professor Lewin agrees that a combination of different strategies is likely to ultimately be needed to achieve HIV cure.
1: These approaches will almost certainly need to be done in combination. Um, It's not enough just to reduce the reservoir. We already know that from various clinical trials and observations in nature that just reducing the reservoir is not enough. At the same time, you also need to enhance immune control. Can you enhance immune control and not worry about the reservoir? Probably don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, we have also recently been involved in a very interesting study just published called Titan. It was led out of Aarhus in Denmark and we were a collaborating site in Melbourne. And in that study the we used it was a randomized controlled trial to placebo A combination of two broadly neutralizing antibodies, a TLR9 agonist, which is an immune activator andor a latency reversing agent, or the combination of the TLR9 agonist and the two antibodies. The participants received those interventions in four arms. They received the antibodies at the time of stopping antiretroviral therapy, which was important. And then we looked at the time to viral rebound and the percentage of people that controlled virus after the antibodies had washed out because the antibodies took some time to wash out. And what we found was that the participants that received antibodies, either antibodies alone or antibodies of the TLA-9 agonist, had a prolonged time to viral rebound, which is sort of not surprising because the antibodies are on board and they're acting as antivirals essentially. However, once the antibodies were washed out, we couldn't no longer detect them in plasma. About a third of the participants maintained the met the primary endpoint, which was a viral load less than 1,000 copies per mil by week 24. So, um, And the TL9 agonist didn't make a difference. It looked the same, whether you had the antibodies or the antibodies plus the TL9 agonist. So that's a very interesting study um, because... Just two antibodies on their own, given at the right time, at the time of treatment interruption, allowed about a third of participants to control. And the addition of the TLR9 agonist, which we thought was a latency reversing agent or an immune modulator, not a very potent latency reversing agent, just didn't make much difference. Um, so we're learning, and we're learning from different combinations, and there's a range of different combination studies now published or in process so it's a bit too early to say whether where you have to also reduce the reservoir when you enhance immune control, but we're slowly working that out.
0: Another key research question related to potential cure strategies is when is the best time to administer potential interventions? For example, are they more likely to be successful if administered at the time of initiation of antiretroviral therapy? Or is it better to wait until viral suppression has been achieved, as was originally thought? Here's Dr. Barr.
3: In terms of promising cure strategies, one of the new approaches that is being considered in recently completed and ongoing trials is the concept of intervening at the time that we start antiretroviral therapy. And this is for two reasons. One, several studies have shown that A large proportion of the reservoir is actually established during the time of ART initiation. So it's a good time to try to intervene to prevent or to block reservoir formation. That's not going to eliminate the reservoir, but it could substantially reduce it. So there's multiple trials looking at either broadly neutralizing antibodies or other interventions at the time people who are recently diagnosed with HIV start on therapy to try to interact then. Another reason why this is a good intervention time point is that as we start people on antiretroviral therapy, we're doing standard of care approaches, uh, starting antiretrovirals as soon as possible for personal and public health reasons. But we know there's still virus circulating For a period of time um, after antiretrovirals stop ongoing virus replication. So that allows us to use interventions that need a virus. Um, For example, an antibody that might bind to that virus to make an immune complex that could stimulate the immune system or any other intervention that needs a little bit of virus or antigen to drive it. There is still several weeks of virus present at the time of our initiation. And so that's a nice opportunity to use those specific strategies either to enhance the immune system or to better target virus-infected cells.
0: So it's likely that the optimal timing will be different depending on the type of intervention and whether actively replicating virus is required for the mechanism of action. Here's Professor Lewin.
1: Well, the timing of when you introduce the intervention is a very hot topic currently, and it probably differs depending on the intervention. So in the recent immunotherapy studies, and I mean largely here antibody studies, if you give the antibodies in people, traditionally cure interventions have been given to people who are on stable antiretroviral therapy with viral control and very little evidence of any viral replication. And and the intervention is given while the person's on antiretroviral therapy and that Makes sense for a latency reversing agent because you're stimulating virus production, and you don't want any new virus to go on to infect other cells. So that makes sense, or so that there's some rationale for maybe the latency reversing agent should be used at the to- at the initiation of antiretroviral therapy when latency is being established. Though that hasn't really been proven yet. Or you enhance immune control, and what has been seen in the antibody studies is that if you take someone on stable antiretroviral therapy, you give them the antibodies, and then you stop antiviral therapy a few weeks or months later, it doesn't. There's no difference in viral rebound. But if you give the antibodies when a person is viremic, um, either at the time of ART initiation or at the time of ART interruption. Those are the studies where we've seen some effects in some participants, maybe about a third of participants enabled able to control their virus or meet the primary endpoint of the study. When I say controlling virus, no, no, no intervention yet has got us to less than 200 copies per mil or less than 50 copies per mil. But the primary endpoint of the study, which in most cases, is less than 1,000 copies per mil. So the, the studies that have used antibodies and the participants of IREMIC seem to be having more success, and that might be related to how these antibodies are working, and we still don't really know. But it's possible that when an antibody binds to a free virus, it induces a potent immune response in T cells, as opposed to the antibody binding to an infected cell and eliminating it. So um, this is still up for debate. I think the timing of intervention is important. I think it's something that needs exploration. The rationale for different timing will differ depending on the strategy being used.
0: With many clinical trials ongoing, but still in early phases of development, what role can healthcare professionals providing care for people living with HIV play? And how should they be communicating with their patients and colleagues about HIV care research? I posed this question to Dr. Barr. I think
3: that... There's two different things that healthcare providers can talk with their patients about about cure that are very helpful. The first is that our cure strategies are rapidly evolving, but no trials that we're trying to um, enroll participants in right now are guaranteed to be successful. So participation in cure research, although we're very excited about the progression of this field, participation is an altruistic and a long term you know, approach. This is not about a strong likelihood of an individual being cured. This is about contributing to our understanding as a field and slowly moving the field forward. The other thing I think is important that's important for healthcare providers to understand is we have different definitions of what an HIV cure might mean. And it's important to think about what each of these strategies is looking for. Um, we think of a total eradicative cure or getting rid of all of the virus-infected cells in the body. That is one type of cure, and that is only being approached in a in a narrow range of current cure strategies. Other types of cure include more of a, a cancer-type model where we're talking about remission, where we think about the virus being largely gone and, and controlled or suppressed by the immune system, but maybe not fully. Uh, eradicated. And that more functional cure is a different sort of goal that many cure strategies are currently aiming for, but it's important for a patient or for an individual to understand what we're talking about when we talk about HIV cure and potential HIV cure trials or approaches. I think HIV care providers can serve as an important link between Um, patients and the sort of research um, academic enterprise. And so if a provider finds that a particular patient has a strong interest in being more involved as an advocate or as an educator or as a trial participant, they can link that individual with various clinical trial sites or Um, groups doing these types of studies so that we can continue to build our population of community advocates and educators as well as um, really informed participants in these studies because oftentimes we do ask a lot of participants and it's very important that they understand the risks and benefits and the long-term goals of the HIV cured field so that they can truly be informed in their participation.
0: Making sure that people living with HIV who are considering participation in a clinical HIV cure trial have a strong understanding of the potential risks and benefits of their participation is essential. What are some of the risks involved in HIV cure studies? One concern is the use of the Analytical Treatment Interruption, or ATI, that Dr. Dong mentioned in her description of cure clinical trials. During the ATI, participants discontinue their antiretroviral therapy to determine the efficacy of the cure intervention. Here's Richard Jeffries.
4: And, you know, particularly the use of analytical treatment interruptions can raise some concerns, both in terms of whether there might be risk to individual health in having the virus come back and the inflammation uh, that goes along with that, even if it's transient. There's a bit of concern about that there could be long-term consequences of, of that, um, and also transmission. That you know, there has been two reported cases of, of transmission to a sexual partner from, from a participant in, undergoing a treatment interruption in the study. They were kind of older studies um, using quite long interruptions, but it is it is an issue of concern. Still, there's been some community work, and there's some published. Um, recommendations for how to offer partner protection packages and so on within the context of analytical treatment interruption research and sort of best practices.
0: Professor Lewin shared her thoughts on some of the important ethical considerations related to HIV cure research, including the issue of safety with analytical treatment interruptions.
1: There are a number of really important ethical issues as we move into the clinic, and, of course, there's many clinical trials now, so a lot of these have already been debated extensively but are still under um, debate and discussion. Uh, The first is using a treatment interruption, and at the moment, we don't have a good biomarker that can predict viral control after stopping antiretroviral therapy. We can... Identify if the reservoir has shrunk or reduced in size, but that doesn't tell us whether the participant is going to rebound after stopping antiretroviral therapy. So the gold standard at the moment in the field is stopping antiretroviral therapy, waiting until rebound, and even beyond that, not just waiting to time to rebound, but waiting to see if the person controls viral replication. And this can sometimes require a period of viremia, in order for the immune system to kick in. So um, these all need to be managed very, very carefully. The most important being that the person themselves does not get sick with a burst of viral replication, which can lead to a reduction in CD4 count. Very unusual, but trials always accommodate that happening. And if that was to happen, antiretroviral therapy would be restarted immediately. The other consideration, of course, is that for a person is viremic for a period of time, they can transmit the virus to others because they're no longer undetectable and untransmissible. And so therefore, a lot of counselling needs to go in for the participant as well as their sexual partners. And the final really challenging area is when a person, and we haven't really worked this out, achieves viral control and you're monitoring them and they may be then they're, they're unsure at any time what their viral load is, of course. Um, and it, so it really does challenge that message that we've been giving to patients for a long time of U equals U. Um, and so ideally what we really need to address this issue is something like a home-based viral load testing kit so a person really knows, are they viremic or have they rebounded? But in the short term, for viral therapy interruptions it's really important that the participant and the broader community fully understand the risks, the benefits, and why it's being done.
0: Dr. Dong has similar concerns about the potential risks of ATIs, and also highlighted the lack of consensus on endpoints across HIV care trials. Right now, we don't have standardized guidelines for how
2: long an ATI should last or even what the criteria should be for stopping the ATI and restarting ART. So we have a lot of different trials that unfortunately don't really have comparable results because they're so diverse in their design. Um, So for example, one trial may say, you need to restart ART immediately as soon as there's any viremia, while others would strongly advocate for allowing permissive viremia to see whether or not the patient's gonna achieve a baseline or suppress on their own. So one might argue um, patient safety is first and foremost, so we need to start treatment back immediately and not put the patient in any kind of risk, while others would say that we're depriving a participant of potentially becoming a post-treatment controller if we do restart so soon. So um, we haven't met in the middle yet, but it's something that we need to as we standardize um, study designs. There's also occur as far as what kind of risk could occur during rebound is possible acute retroviral syndrome, which is caused by an inflammation rush or surge that accompanies rapid viral replication. Um, and this could possibly activate underlying um, dormant infections and the potential for allowing um, viral rebound and resulting in negative health outcomes long-term like cardiac disease, many years down the line. So these are um, considerations and worries about low-level viremia causing inflammation, and we don't know what those are gonna cause down the line. And what about the sexual partners? So ATIs, or pausing your ARVs, obviously put a sexual partner at risk, those who are uninfected or whose HIV status is unknown. So that transmission risk needs to be addressed. One of the considerations, so let's say a sponsor says, I wanna be on the safer side of things, and I wanna mandate that a participant is going to disclose their status to a partner, or that would be an exclusion criteria. But what do you do in a setting where gender-based violence is endemic and disclosing to one's partner could result in direct harm to the study participant? So you have to have considerations in the different geographic setting where your trial is taking place. And that really defines what are the ethics or the guidelines we need to consider when implementing trials. Um, Another ethical consideration is including control groups in trials, which means some participants will undergo all of the rigors of frequent visits, invasive sampling, and the emotional anxiety that may arise from trial participation but they have no chance of the biomedical benefit from a new intervention. So these are issues that are being actively discussed, and hopefully in the coming year in 2024, we'll have revised guidelines that are going to give some measure of continuity and alignment between the different trials that allow us to synergize and rather having so many different trials that we can't compare the results that we have an opportunity to look at cross-trial results and make um, stronger interpretations from the work that's being done.
0: There are also important safety considerations related to the use of gene therapy in HIV care studies. Again, here's Professor Lewin.
1: In gene therapy, there are many things to consider. The longevity of the modification, off-target effects, long-term follow-up, complications of the gene therapy, impacts on fertility, a whole range of things. It will all vary depending on the type of gene therapy being used, but a whole range of issues that that not only raise ethical issues, but really require um, a high level of scientific literacy. It's really important that the community understand those issues. Corinne
0: Dubé is Adjunct Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Management at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, an associate professor in the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine's Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health. Her research focuses on integrating socio-behavioral research into HIV cure trials in the United States and South Africa. She works closely with Dr. Dong on a number of projects aiming to bring a person-centered approach to clinical trials evaluating HIV cure strategies. So, she seems like an excellent person to ask how healthcare professionals can best counsel people living with HIV who are considering participation in an HIV care trial. So, we recommend that healthcare providers
5: help participants make decisions about whether or not to participate. And we recommend adopting a readiness and resilience framework. So, not just um, about the informed consent process, but also supporting the entire trajectory of trial participation for their patients. So healthcare providers can help uh, patients understand the potential risk of the interventions and have transparent conversations. And also the potential risk of the analytical treatment interruptions are the ATIs. And these are not just the clinical risk, but they're also potential social, emotional, mental health, and psychosocial risk. And for people with partners who do not have HIV, there's also the risk of transmitting HIV to their partners. And of course, participants should stay in really close contact with their healthcare provider during their participation in the trial, even when they're on off therapy. And so we recommend also communicating the uncertainty distinct from risk and helping patients understand that trials are addressing a, a question and whether the experimental intervention will have an impact on the ability to keep HIV suppressed in the absence of therapy and this intervention will likely not cure them. And we know that participants experience during ATI trials will be highly heterogeneous. So it's really important to help uh, people with HIV understand the time commitments that are involved, the blood draws and the procedures needed during HIV cure related trials. And there could also be potential um, psychosocial side effects. So it's really important to capture them as well through the use of social behavioral sciences. And some participants may also need really close counseling and support following their treatment interruption with ART adherence. And so it's important to also inform medical providers of the time that will be needed for viral resuppression following a treatment interruption. And overall, we recommend a holistic person-centered clinical trial design.
0: Another important challenge that many clinical development programs are currently recognizing and aiming to address, including in HIV cure research, is adequate representation of the population. Here's
3: Dr. Barr. It's also incredibly important that we get the full range of participation across gender, across race, across ethnicity. Um, And that honestly has been a a real challenge for the HIV cure field as well. Traditionally, our you know, Western studies are largely enrolled by white men, and they have been incredibly altruistic in their commitment to participating in this research. But we need to make it easier for women, for people of color, for um, a full range of society to participate because we're not trying to develop strategies for just for one section of the Uh, population, we really need to make sure that our cures work, our strategies work across the full range of people with HIV.
0: Through clinical trial tracking by the Treatment Action Group, Richard Jeffries has seen numbers that support the need for increasing diversity in HIV cure studies.
4: We were able to spin off kind of from the listing of of studies that we maintain because we, we do our best to track when results are presented from those studies in the listing and then add a link to the any results as part of it. And so that allowed us to, um, starting from the beginning of 2018, to extract the, uh, where it was presented and available, the demographics of, of the participants in the studies. And so we've now got about, I think, 136 studies that we've tracked and, and extracted the information you know, it's a little less than 20% of the participants are cisgender women, Um, so like some historical research, it has been, the the demographics are skewed towards uh, primarily white uh, gay men. What we are hoping to create is a situation where people are aware of the opportunity and have the opportunity to consider participating in a study not to be kind of press ganging people (laughs) into study because their demographic is underrepresented in some way it's important that to have representation to ensure that there's knowledge about how an intervention works in 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 diverse populations so that you don't get a cure that's only going to work for some people not others but at the same time it, it has to be about just providing the opportunity maximum sort of understandable information about what's involved because some people are incredibly altruistic and, and wanting to participate and ensure that their community is part of these studies. Others for, you know, completely justifiable and, and uh, sound reasons are reluctant at this point, which is totally fine.
0: So how can the field ensure that cure research more accurately represents the diversity of the population of people living with HIV? Here's Dr. Dubé.
5: Broad representation
0: and inclusion
5: is a matter of equity and justice. And for example, we need to enroll more women in HIV cure-related clinical trials and really understand how research participation fits in the context of women's lives. And so we should really practice gender inclusivity at all stages of clinical trial design and implementation and attention should be paid to gender and power dynamics, particularly around issues of uh, disclosure and partner protection during treatment interruptions. We also need to help participants overcome barriers to participation. And this really comes down to really practical issues and logistical issues like transportation, childcare, and so on, and really supporting participants. In terms of increasing racial and ethnic diversity, We need to be really intentional about diversity and clinical trial design and meet communities and people with HIV where they are. And so we recommend implementing trials with social justice and racial justice frameworks and also engaging care providers who serve um, diverse communities because patients have the trust of their providers. We also need a lot more investment in culturally appropriate materials uh, for patients And uh, Dr. Dong and I have also been advocating for trauma-informed research approaches and even helping uh, participants move beyond trauma and incorporating more healing-centered clinical trial design. So having a psychosocial support infrastructure can really go a long way in helping support participants through their uh, participation in research. And we also need to acknowledge the local context when implementing your trials, and that's an urgent necessity. And uh, we've mentioned the topic of partner protections earlier on, so also understanding how this will differ by sex and gender, race, ethnicity is really important. Uh, We really need to be able to bridge HIV cure-related research with prevention, uh, particularly if there are going to be treatment interruptions involved in the trial design.
0: Having a well-informed community in any medical research field is critical for ensuring engagement and addressing ethical considerations. I asked Dr. Dube how healthcare professionals can work to increase community engagement in HIV care research. That's a great question. Healthcare professionals can stay informed about
5: recent developments in HIV cure research, and they can work with HIV cure trial teams and find out which trials are happening in their areas. And we also recommend uh, helping advocates for greater support services for participants and, and also their partners. That can also include mental health services and access to a pre-exposure prophylaxis for partners. Um, Of course, effective patient and community engagement requires efforts and resources and careful planning. So it's important to consult and involve individuals who can speak to the needs and concerns of the diverse communities that are affected by HIV. And there's also a need to help manage expectations around when a cure for HIV may materialize and what it can achieve in the short term. And also stress that early phase uh, trials have limited personal direct clinical benefits for individual patients and participants. So initial efforts may rely primarily on the altruism of people with HIV, but they may also have tremendous psychosocial benefits as well. And so we recommend healthcare providers also help advocate for the creation of really simple materials about cure-related research to help explain how these experimental interventions work, what are the modes of administration, their potential risks. Another effective way to engage uh, communities are to um, invite uh, prior trial participants to uh, speak about their participation in clinical trials and how it has benefited them and Involving prior trial participants can be a really effective way to engage the community as well. And we recommend also developing more engagement materials for providers. Um, so providers can help refer people with HIV into clinical trials. So developing trial brochures or postcards to give to their patients, and also preparing cure research updates for clinicians would also be really helpful. We, we do need to um, have a lot more investments and engagement for providers as well.
0: As we've discussed, the community of people living with HIV is diverse and represents a wide range of perspectives on HIV care research. Angelina Namiba is founding member and co-director of the 4M Network, a peer support program led by Black migrant women who are training women living with HIV across the United Kingdom to provide psychosocial support to peers during and beyond their pregnancy journey as mentor mothers When I spoke with Angelina, she expressed her concerns about the persistence of HIV stigma and the importance of recognizing the current availability of highly effective treatment while still advancing the search for a cure. I think we shouldn't just make the assumption that the cure will cure HIV stigma. We still don't have a pill to cure stigma, but absolutely they should not stop looking for a cure because... That's how things have happened over the years. We need to develop more and more things. We need to get better and better. But we also just need to be mindful of the fact that as science is developing and they're trying to look for and find a cure, we shouldn't lose sight of what we already have in our toolbox. I raised the question of the need for an HIV cure in the current era of highly effective antiretroviral therapy with Professor Lewin.
1: You know, there are some people that are very happy on daily treatment Two monthly treatment with injectable antiretroviral therapy, or one day maybe six or twelve monthly um, uh, antiretroviral therapy not available yet. They're doing very well on antiretroviral therapy. These people may not be the people that are really interested in a cure. There are some people though who find daily treatment quite challenging and/or unable to adhere to daily treatment. And then in, in the in a global level, the funding model of lifelong Antiretroviral therapy forever for everyone is not guaranteed, so we do need an alternative because we may not be able to fund that lifelong for everyone everywhere. So we, when we think about who is the target population, there are certainly people that are on stable antiretroviral therapy who are very keen on a cure because they don't want to be taking therapy forever, and it may have some benefits on toxicities, for example, or comorbidities, we don't know the, if, if we had a successful cure, we don't know the answer to that. But there are people for which antiretroviral therapy doesn't work, meaning they don't want to take it or have drug resistance or can't access it. So we, these are also the people we're thinking about.
0: Although HIV cure research remains in early stages of development, it's still important to plan ahead for implementation challenges and for ensuring access across geographic regions. Here's Professor Lewin.
1: So prioritising cure research and ultimately implementation in low-middle-income countries is really, really important. Most clinical trials currently are happening in high-income countries, although there are several countries, low-middle-income countries, that have done some very important work in cure research and or doing some very important clinical trials, specifically Thailand that's been working in this area for a long time, mainly on acute infection Um, Botswana, that's done some very good work on um, antibody treatments in children, and more recently, South Africa. And um, I think it's really important that we build greater capacity in low and middle income countries for a number of reasons. Um, That's where most of the people living with HIV are currently. If we ever do find a cure, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to go into um, preparing a community for the cure. So um, I'm currently the president of the International AIDS Society. We've been very active in cure science, um, leading on the global scientific strategy for cure, now published a couple of years ago, but also running a range of programs to in- increase capacity in low middle income countries. We run two academies in sub Saharan Africa one for new researchers from low middle income countries, one for advocates or for the community. Um, there's a recent new program run by CIFAR Centers for AIDS Research in the US that will provide a scholarship for researchers from low-middle-income countries to work in cure research. And I think this is really, really important. Also, when we're developing a product and thinking about the ideal product or what is commonly called the target product profile or TPP, again, the IAS has done a lot of work on TPPs for cure um, we've got to be thinking about the TPP for a low-middle-income country. We can't be thinking about a product that's available in high-income and not available in low-middle-income countries and how it's going to be implemented. So this area um, is is really, really important. Um, we know that many low-middle-income countries can do this work. They can do it really well. And um, further investment, I think, is needed to ensure we've got the scientists, we've got the clinicians, We've got the community who have um, who are very familiar with participation in some of these trials, all involved, not just in high income countries, but in low and middle income countries as well.
0: I also asked Dr. Dubé for her thoughts on the issues of acceptability and accessibility when considering potential HIV care strategies.
5: We should absolutely be building acceptability, scalability and cost effectiveness as part of clinical trial design, in addition to safety and efficacy. So this comes down to the concept of translational social value that's been proposed. And one group that's doing this very well at the moment is the Global Gene Therapy Initiative or GGTI. So just to speak to the acceptability aspect, we think we'll need a journey approach to HIV care research, and we'll need to build the person-centered infrastructure. So for example, before trial, we can have more robust informed consent um, and really adapt this to the individual and uh, assess psychosocial readiness to enter a clinical trial. And then during the trial, it's helpful to conduct psychosocial and mental health assessment and ensure that there's adequate support. There could be anxiety of being off therapy. So we really need to be able to capture tolerance for adverse events, potential psychosocial side effects, and so on. And then after a trial, it's always helpful to have regular check-ins with participants and monitor for long-term potential side effects. Um, There will be participants who will have achieved a state of sustained post-intervention control. And even participants who have achieved this state or people who achieve cure will still need continued psychosocial support um, following their trial participation. And so we recommend moving beyond the biomedical-only approaches to also include psychosocial considerations. And healthcare providers can have a really important role to play in helping Advocate for this uh, psychosocial uh, research infrastructure. And this will also need to be adapted to context.
0: In this episode, we heard from global experts and people living with HIV on the current status of HIV cure research and key concepts to understand when communicating with patients, colleagues, and the broader community. Go to the link in the show notes to get access to other episodes in this program and to read short opinion pieces from HIV experts across the globe.
1: (music) you <music>